This is the fourth Sunday of Advent, and so we're poised to enter Christmas uh, in just a day, and we're going to start that, that process. So what I thought I'd do is preach today on briefly on the reading from Micah, which is another one of those readings we don't hear from, like Zephaniah last week. We don't read from Micah very often. Then to say something about one of the lead figures in the economy of salvation, which always on the fourth Sunday of Advent we switch and speak about the Blessed Virgin Mary. And so I want to say some things to you about how Episcopalians understand Mary and her importance in the divine economy and some of the qualities attributed to her which constitute for some in in our era uh, roadblocks to understanding the value of Mary and her role in the Incarnation, and then to follow that with uh, some, some stuff about the Gospel according to St. Luke and what we have today with Mary's visit to Elizabeth, uh, who is going to give birth to John the Baptist. And so this is a sort of flashback. And then we have at the end of the reading today... Uh, Mary uh, reciting the Magnificat. And if you read the Magnificat carefully, you will see that it is not some pious screed. It is a call to action. And it is an understanding of what is meant by uh, how we understand what Luke valued very much in the Gospel and follows on what I've been talking about for the last two or three weeks We're talking about the beginning stuff now, the incarnation, and we're reading about it in the Gospels. And in a couple of months, we're going to fast forward to the the cross. So now we're going to start to talk about what's in between, which often gets neglected in the Gospels. Because a lot of the Christianity that uh, you and I uh, think about is from Paul, not from the Gospels. And we need to understand the differences between those things. So, Micah. Micah was from a little place called Morsheth in the ancient Near East. And he exercised his prophetic ministry in the 700s BC. Micah actually has three sections and was written by three people or three different groups over a period of time. Micah, a school of Micah, and who we hear from today, which are the post-exilic group, faithful to Micah, and Micah's relationship with Isaiah. He is just like Zephaniah. If you read most of Micah, it's, oh, no, it's a rainy day. We're going to hear more of this, you know. This is the most upbeat piece. Why is it in the lectionary today? Because it's interested in talking about return from exile and restoration. And that the coming of the Savior is going to have something to do with our understanding of this, both externally in terms of our self-understanding as a people, and for those people who heard it back then, that was the principal focus, and also for the Christians who use this text for saying Jesus was born in Bethlehem. 
and wanting to, to drive that home because it's part of this narrative about where Jesus is going to come from and he's going to be born in the same place that David was born. So Micah gives us this idea that, you know, you and I can overcome uh, personally and internally our sense of alienation and separateness. And we're able some way to understand that we can make a difference in relationship with other people. And that as we center ourselves in God, we're able to be agents for uh, health and wholeness in relationship. And that that's where the promises of God get realized not merely in terms of our own emotional, spiritual, and mental states, but as they relate to others and to other circumstances. So Micah is giving us an upbeat picture, and he's speaking about now the hopeful signs that he, his group sees after the exile, when they've returned from Babylon to Jerusalem and are now rebuilding the temple. So the agent for this, the birth of the Savior, is Mary. And we have to say a word about Mary. Episcopalians have been influenced by the great tradition with a capital T, the Catholic tradition with a small c. And we've also been influenced by the Continental Reformation that happened in the 16th century. And in the 16th century, in the Continental Reformation, uh, Mary was not held in quite the high regard among Protestant Christians uh, that uh, she might have been. And so we would not say that we have any official um, view on Mary in the same sense that the Roman Catholic Church does. But in the practical effects of what it is we do in our liturgy, we honor Mary in the same way that they do perhaps without uh, some of the more hair-raising doctrines that have surrounded uh, the cult of the Blessed Virgin Mary. You notice, maybe you've noticed this for a long time, when I uh, uh, preside at the liturgy and we come to the part in the, in the Eucharistic prayer where Mary is mentioned, I refer to her as the God-bearer. I don't say the ever-blessed Virgin Mary. And I do that on purpose because Theotokos in Greek means God-bearer. And that's what it says, in the, and the Eastern Church has always used that terminology. The doctrine we're going to, I should probably start and do this now. There are two doctrines that uh, can be very great sticking points for many people. One is something called the Immaculate Conception. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception is on December the 8th. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception uh, does not have anything to do with the birth of Jesus. The Feast of the Immaculate Conception is a doctrine that says Mary was conceived in her mother's womb without original sin. And so when she was born, she had post-baptismal grace. Some of you are going to say, why are we talking about this? <laughs> well, back in the Middle Ages and things, people started, you know, 
They needed to get a life, maybe, I don't know. It's like sports talk radio, you know. And so you hear this, this kind of thing. But that's what it was. Many of the great medieval theologians had serious trouble with the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. St. Thomas Aquinas was one of them. And so it has not been universally uh, thought of as something that we ought to promote uh, in this way. The second doctrine is what we will call the virginal conception, which is the belief that Mary uh, conce conceived Jesus by other than the normal natural means. You know, you could say, when I taught religion at St. Michael's School in Tucson, Arizona, to third graders and fourth graders, and some would say, yeah, but, you know, I mean, how did, Ma how did Mary get pregnant? And I would say, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her. And they went, oh. <laughs> you could get away with that then, you know, eight-year-old, nine-year-old, no more. But I want to read you something by Reginald Fuller that uh, uh, may help, I hope. He's a biblical scholar in our tradition. He died a few years ago, but he was real famous. All that the historian can say with certainty is that the basic elements in this tradition of the virginal conception are earlier than Matthew or Luke for the name of Mary, her virginity, and the function of the Holy Spirit are common to both Matthew and Luke, who are otherwise independent of one another at this point. In other words, in the infancy narratives, there are only two Gospels that have infancy narratives, which say, how did Jesus get born, and where was he born, and who was he related to, and all of these kinds of things. They only appear in Matthew and Luke, and they don't agree in all particulars except here. Many would also argue that these traditions can be traced back to the earliest stratum of Christianity. What does all that mean? It means that there was a pre-existing tradition about the virginal conception that predates the writing of the Gospels. And that for some reason, both Matthew and Luke felt compelled to reproduce it. In other words, to... Uh, say, be faithful to that tradition that they received rather than uh, disagreeing with it. My own personal feeling is it's not essential to believe in the virginal conception in order to believe in all of the, the, the things that we speak about in terms of Jesus' divinity, about how we understand what that means both then and now, and all of those kinds of things. It's not sort of a deal breaker. Some people think that it is, you know, but it really isn't. In Matthew's Gospel, the most Jewish of the Gospels, perhaps, Matthew, a former rabbi, writing about 85 or 90 A.D., quotes uh, New Hebrew, obviously. And in the Hebrew Bible, in Isaiah, you have heard the famous word, Behold, uh, a young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb a son, and he shall be called Emmanuel, right? Now, that's often translated as virgin. In the Hebrew Bible, the word is Alma, which means a young woman of marriageable age. There is a Greek version of the Hebrew Bible that was written by the Jews who lived in the diaspora. 
Sailing <laughs> Alexandria, around there after the exile and everything. And they made a translation of the Hebrew Bible called the Septuagint. And when they translated Isaiah, Behold, the young woman shall conceive and bear in her womb, they used the word in Greek, Parthenos. And Parthenos means virgin. So these two traditions are there. And Matthew... A Hebrew rabbi uses Parthenos in the Greek text and not a Greek translation of Alma. What does that mean? It means that he was at pains to reproduce this tradition. So the church has this. But don't think uh, that somehow you need to uh, focus on that as the principal thing. Mary's role in the divine economy has something to do with her obedience. And this is a very, very difficult thing to speak about these days. Obedience is a difficult thing generally. Obedience has something to do with the cardinal virtue of humility, by the way. And humility is not the I develop the groveling style as I live my life and relate to people, right? Humility is knowing yourself. So most of the time, in many circles today, obedience is uh, a code word for controlling dissent, thwarting our individual initiative, or something that needs to be imposed on anyone who takes their Christianity seriously. You know, it's like my grandmother said when I complained as a little boy about how badly I was being treated generally. She said, you must rise above it. So be obedient to what it is you, you need to do. So that has to do with understanding obedience in terms of rule-keeping, commandment compliance, performance according to precepts, and works doing stuff. But there's another understanding of obedience which fits Mary better, and that is the understanding of obedience as listening to the still small voice from within that you know is not your own. Last week I spoke about one of the qualities of the season of Advent, which is expectation. And expectation can be understood as allowing full play internally uh, of your imaginative powers. To be able in some way to see what might be. And so when Mary said yes to this, she really assented to following God on the way not knowing what this might produce and what would happen. But here's Mary. We talk about her in this, you know, maybe a 15-year-old girl. She didn't know, uh, I was going to say from Adam, but that would be a ton. <laughs> it would be a terrible, awful. Listen to what she says here. His mercy for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought the powerful down from their thrones and lifted up the lowly. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. 
He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham and to his descendants forever. Out of the mouth of a 15-year-old girl. Now, okay? That's not sort of sentimentality that we're hearing from the Blessed Virgin Mary. In fact, it is, it is an affirmation of the importance of the social justice and equity that Luke's gospel is shot through with. The middle bits. And so when we talk about Mary, sometimes I think uh, she gets defanged in terms of her importance and her own personal integrity and her courage. And so maybe that's why she might constitute uh, a template that we lay over our own spiritual life and maturity. You know, the template is Jesus, as it says in the, the epistle to the Hebrews, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. But all of us have more than one template. And certainly Mary in the early church was someone who was capable of connecting people spiritually, emotionally, and mentally to the humanity of Jesus. He had a human mother. When I was in seminary, the then Cardinal Archbishop of Belgium, Cardinal Sunens, was in Milwaukee. And he gave a talk at the University of Milwaukee. And he got up and uh, spoke. And then at the very end, he said, When you reduce Jesus Christ to a theological concept, a theological concept that does not have a mother, And I thought, well, we all have a mother, right? And that's important. And for many people, that was the way in of connecting themselves to this person now who had become so divinized that uh, he appeared for many completely unapproachable as a human being. But he became accessible through his mother, you know? And that's, I think, what the biblical witness has something to say about, aside from what I've said before, that Mary's obedience was the cultivation of the far-seeing aspects of the spiritual life, the ability to discern and to intuit, which is maybe what we celebrate and honor in her. So this week, as you continue, as we, this week we're coming on it pretty soon, uh, see if you can uh, allow your imaginative powers to have their full play. See if uh, you have the courage of your convictions. Um, know that when it gets tough, uh, as it says in today's gospel, nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. Amen.